trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're a first-time wrong thinker or a long-time wrong thinker, you are welcome here. As we gather to uh, challenge the narrative, to think a little more deeply and a little more clearly about things, and at the end of the day, to come away from whatever is being discussed as more sure of what we stand for than simply who or what we're against. I know it's kind of a tall order, and it's uh, not always easy because there's a lot of controversy on any given day, but it's worth it because uh, the ultimate goal here is we're standing up for things that matter, things like personal conscience, things like freedom, things like private property rights, freedom of association, etc. That's stuff that matters. It's stuff that makes life better. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and we're pleased to welcome a new sponsor to the show, GovernYourIncome.com. Now, there's a link that you can use to follow each one of these sponsors or to, to visit their websites, learn more about them. You'll find it in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. So I want to start with, with an acknowledgement that everything become, that becomes politicized turns into a power struggle. And this is one of the reasons why I personally have uh, have backed way off of politics. I may talk about some political issues from time to time, but if you if you pay attention, if you notice, I'm usually usually not stumping for well, you know, it's a rah rah red and boo to the blue. It's it's so easy to get caught up in that tribal mentality, where where the bumper sticker slogans are really the primary way of communicating whatever it is we believe. I think a great example of what this looks like is uh, the current war over uh, school books and school curriculum, parents versus school boards. You know, we're getting the Department of Justice involved, for crying out loud, because these parents may actually end up being uh, some kind of domestic terrorist for challenging the people in charge of deciding what their kids are supposed to learn. All right, this is where we need a good voice of reason. And that's where I turn to someone like Jacob Hornberger, president and founder of the Future of Freedom Foundation. By the way, I subscribe to their uh, daily emails, and they come through six days a week. If you go to fff.org, you'll get, uh, oh, probably close to a dozen articles every day, or Monday through Saturday, that they send out right to your email box. You don't have to read every single article. But I promise you, you will find things that will give you a much better take on what's happening in the world around you and coming from a very principled liberty centered point of view as opposed to democrats republicans etc so in in speaking of the the current you know back and forth the tug of war taking place over students in public schools jacob hornberger refers to it as the statist war over public school books And that may rub you the wrong way, but I want you to hear him out or at least consider what he has to say. Is it possible that we're missing the point when we focus on just strictly that binary look? It's either this or it's this. What if all that fighting back and forth is keeping us from seeing the real 
challenge or the real root of the problem. Hornberger says statists all over the country are going to war with each other over which books will be permitted to be placed in public, meaning government, school libraries. And he says their mindsets are so mired in statism that they cannot see there's no possible way to resolve their war in a way that will make everyone happy. Now, what they fail to recognize is that their basic paradigm for education, that the state should be educating children, is the real problem. And as long as the state is in charge of education, there will always be fierce political battles over which textbooks will be used, which books should be in the library, what should be taught in the classroom. Moreover, he says the majority will rule. Now, it might be a majority of school board members at the local level making the decisions, or it might be a majority in the state legislature, or a majority of the state board of education. All these people, of course, are either elected or appointed through the political process. And whatever side is in the majority, well, they'll be happy that their book selections have prevailed, and whoever's in the minority will be unhappy and will cry censorship. And the political battles will continue with each side fighting hard to get their people elected or appointed into public office. Now, I'm going to hit pause here for just a second and just ask you, does, does that not make sense, at least on, on some level? Because it's, it's really an either-or thing. Well, you know, we either, we either win this school board election or we win this discussion over this issue or we don't. So it really comes down to who gets to do what to whom. But that's the nature of politics. And again, this is one of the reasons why I have, have chosen to step back from politics in so many areas. Because it needlessly pits us against each other because it's more about what we do to one another than actually working with each other. Now, Jacob Hornberger from here talks about religious liberty. And he starts by saying, thank goodness for the First and Fourteenth Amendments. These two amendments prohibit states from involving themselves in religious affairs. And he says, imagine if we didn't have those two express prohibitions. We would be experiencing the same types of fierce political wars in religion that we're experiencing in education. There would also be battles over what religious books to promote or display in churches. There'd be fights over which version of the Bible to use. People would be battling over which religious doctrines to adopt. There would be forever wars over the format for Sunday services. There would be compulsory church attendance laws for children, as well as church buses to transport them to church. And there would undoubtedly be battles over whether to adopt a system of church vouchers or charter churches. There would be locally elected religious boards, similar to school boards. There would be a state board of religion. There would be a fiercely fought political race with candidates' religions being an important factor in the electoral campaigns. But he says none of those religious battles exist for one reason, and that is because the states are prohibited from involving themselves in religion. Instead, there's a multiplicity of churches and religions from which people can choose. So if they don't like what's happening or if they don't like what's being taught in one church or religion, they can move to another one. People are not able to impose their religious views on others through majority vote. I know some people may be shaking their heads going, come on, that's such a poor comparison. Apples to oranges. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that seems to hold up pretty, pretty well with me. The solution that Hornberger is getting at if you haven't figured it out already, is he's talking about the need to separate school 
and state. Right? Most people are on board when we separate church and state, and it, aver- it avoids conflict. I think the same would be true if we separate school and state. Hornberger says that's the only permanent solution to the book controversy in public schools. Rather than engage in nasty political wars over which books to include in the school library, over which doctrines are going to be taught in the classroom, or which textbooks are going to be used, just separate school and state, just as our ancestors separated church and state. Jacob Hornberger says with a free market educational system, it would be like it is in religion, meaning people would be free to select the school or educational vehicle of their choice. And if they don't like how a school is operating or what it's teaching or what books it's using, they're free to simply move to a different school, one that better reflects their values. So he says Americans have two choices. Number one, maintain the status quo, the statist status quo, and engage in endless political battles in education, or number two, separate school and state and bring peace, harmony, and education to society. Now, I promise you, there's someone within the sound of my voice right now looking at the speaker and going, hey, you make it sound like it's so simple. And I'll get you. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But I think in this case, it probably is that simple. The bigger question now is, how do you find enough people willing to separate school and state? Because you want to talk about an entrenched bureaucracy. Holy cow. The education lobby, that is a group that votes as a block generally. This is not to, you know, besmirch those fine teachers and educators out there, but generally between the teachers' unions, politicians, and, you know, state education apparatus, there's a pretty united front for keeping this all in the hands of the state. Immense amounts of money flow through their hands and into their pockets, and some of it makes its way to the actual classroom or to the actual students or the actual educators. But mostly it's about power. And as we're seeing, some will use that power to teach your kids things that uh, are, are questionable at best, right? I mean, teaching your kids about uh, certain perversions at, uh, at the age of five. I don't know who thought that was necessary, but hey, you know, that's one of the things they insist they got to know. Teaching them critical race theory, everything that came before us is wrong, everything is racist. Take the state out of the equation. Nobody can force anybody to have to listen to a particular message. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. One of my great sponsors is LifesavingFood.com. I talk about food storage on a pretty regular basis, and it's not because I'm trying to prepare you for the coming apocalypse, but just simply because, look, even in good times, unexpected things can happen. Most of us know someone, or maybe we've personally experienced, you know, a a temporary loss of employment, or maybe an illness that uh, takes a bite out of the family budget, or unexpected car repairs. You know, the the list is endless. There are a lot of things that can go wrong because we live in a world that, uh, unfortunately, you know, where where that's that's the norm. Things going wrong is, is really the norm. But if there's something you can do to solidify your position, like having 
some food on hand for a rainy day, particularly if it's something that you can stow away with confidence knowing that it has a 25-year shelf life. Well, let's just face it, that's, that's money well spent. You're going to eat the food eventually. The price you get it at today is most likely going to be better than the price you're going to get it at tomorrow. That's uh, more true than ever with uh, what, what's happening inflation-wise. So please take a little trip over to uh, my webpage, thebrianhydeshow.com. You actually can find it in today's show notes. And give some love to my sponsors. Particularly, I'd like you to check out lifesavingfood.com. If you make the decision to purchase, just put in my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, and you get a 20% discount at checkout. That's very generous, by the way. And that's a better discount than if you went to uh, ReadyWise Foods themselves. So thanks in advance for, for helping to keep my sponsors afloat and letting them know their message reached your ears. Let's talk about how the medical establishment has been fighting so hard against things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And I, I don't understand this. I mean, I look, I understand that uh, there are differing points of view, but there's a dogmatic quality <clears throat> that seems to come out whenever you bring up things like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. And, and I don't know if this is because the medical establishment is just all in on, you know, no, 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 nope, nope. The only thing that's acceptable, the only thing that works is that we get everybody vaccinated. Everybody. And it's that, uh, I, I don't know how to put it, that, that absolutism that everybody must do this, no one can resist. That's, what's, that's exactly what's pushing me into the corner of, no, I can't do this. My conscience won't let me do it because it's being forced on people at so many different levels. I mean, if you can make the case, this is good, this is efficacious, this is, you know, this is something that actually works. It's safe and effective. I know we hear those words a lot. But there are a lot of questions that remain. Just because some bureaucrat or uh, some bureaucrat wearing a lab coat says, hey, this is safe and effective does not automatically make it so, unless you believe in word magic, but, you know, I don't. And isn't it curious how hard the medical establishment has fought against alternative treatments to COVID, like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? I've got a great uh, article here from Dr. Harold Pease. This is from uh, libertyunderfire.org. And this is one of the happy stories. I guess this is one of the good news uh, stories of the day. Ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine for COVID can be prescribed in Nebraska. I'm looking at a headline that's part of this article. Ivermectin could have saved millions of lives, but doctors were told not to use it. And before I dive into this article here, I've seen two charts in the last couple of weeks. One was for India. The most recent was just a couple of days ago for Japan. Both of these are countries which decided to not fight against uh, ivermectin, for instance, but make it widely available to their populations, you should see how the case count has dropped in both countries. It's really remarkable. I mean, it's it's not just, oh, well, there's a little you know, dip in the numbers. Well, no big deal. No, it's like a precipitous drop. Why don't we hear more about that? Why can't we stray from the narrative to to look at some of these alternatives? I'm not suggesting this is for everybody. I'm not a doctor. But there are enough doctors out there who say, look, 
These drugs have been around for a long time. They, they clearly have a track record as opposed to the vaccine, which is still new and relatively unknown as far as its long-term effects. Here's what Dr. Harold Pease has to say about it. He says, finally, a breakthrough in the war against ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of COVID-19, which, according to the proponents of these drugs, could have saved hundreds of thousands of American lives had they not been politicized by the FDA, the CDC, the World Health Organization, NIH, AMA, APHA, and ASHP. These strongly oppose the ordering, prescribing, and dispensing of these drugs to prevent or to treat COVID, despite their enormous success by physicians all over America and throughout the world. And, of course, the largely controlled press, like robots, chimed in against. Now, Dr. Pease says, despite the weaponization of these drugs, the state of Nebraska supports doctors' freedom to prescribe them with informed consent of the patient. At the request of Danette Smith, the CEO of the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services, Nebraska Attorney General Doug Peterson issued a legal opinion after a thorough review of the clinical studies of the two drugs before and after COVID and concluded that the preponderance of scientific evidence favored their use in treating COVID for those who wish to use them. Now, in this review, Peterson cited numerous studies showing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine reduced mortality by up to 20, up to 75% or more when used as a preventative or prophylaxis for COVID, suggesting hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved had the drugs been widely used in America. Both drugs have been successfully used long-term. Hydroxychloroquine discovered in 1949, ivermectin discovered in 1975, 3.7 billion doses administered since the 1980s safely, and each for multiple afflictions and off-label usage. Now, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., chairman of the Children's Health Defense, spoke of Nebraska's bold attorney general's effort to reestablish medical freedom in his state, saying every citizen should be grateful for Doug Peterson's thoughtful and courageous counteroffensive against the efforts of Big Pharma, its captive federal regulators, and its media and social media allies to silence doctors and deny Americans life-saving treatments. Mary Holland, Children's Health Defense President, best identified, uh, identified best the effect of the AG's decision, let doctors get back to being doctors without being second-guessed by government or pharmacists or others interfering in the crucial doctor-patient relationship. Neither big government nor big pharma can tell doctors or patients what they can do or not do regarding their health. At least in a free society, that should be true. Now, the report summarized findings on these two drugs. Respecting a hydroxychloroquine study in 2004, they revealed that chloroquine is an effective inhibitor of the replication of the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus, or SARS-CoV, in vitro and should be considered for immediate use in the prevention and treatment of SARS-CoV infections. That's the virus causing the disease COVID-19. A study the following year showed it had strong antiviral effects on SARS-CoV infection and was effective in preventing the spread of SARS-CoV in cell cultures. More studies revealed that hydroxychloroquine significantly reduces the risk of hospitalization and death when administered to particularly high-risk outpatients as part of the early COVID-19 treatment. 
So what about ivermectin? Well, we're going to have to pump the brakes here because we're up against the, the, the spot break, but we'll talk about that next. And again, I'm referring to an article here from Dr. Harold Peace. Uh, he is not a medical doctor. He actually has a Ph.D. in constitutional law, but the man has a take that is well worth considering. And I have a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com just in case you're looking for a little interesting reading to fill your day later on. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Again, this show is not to convince you who or what to be against but rather to help you become more certain of who you are, what you stand for, and better still, what you can do about what's happening in the world around us. We have a lot more influence than we think. I'm sharing an article here from Dr. Harold Peace. This is from his website, uh, libertyunderfire.org. And it's an article about uh, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine for COVID now being able to be be prescribed in Nebraska. He talked about hydroxychloroquine and its uh, its uh, proven track record for for patients as part of an early COVID nineteen treatment. Now let's talk about ivermectin. This is the one that really seems to get the 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 brunt of uh, you know the wrath of, of various people within the media and within the uh, medical establishment. I mean, think about uh, Joe Rogan, diagnosed with COVID here about a month and a half ago. He uh, among the things he used were ivermectin, as well as a number of other treatments, and within a couple of days, he was right as rain. Something which really upsets the people who are primarily pushing fear of, oh, no, 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 no. And so uh, CNN, among others, you know, kept referring to, well, you know, he took some kind of a medicine that normally is used as a horse dewormer, a veterinary medicine, something primarily used for horses, blah, blah, blah. Because in, in their narrative, in their consensus... That falls outside of the scope of acceptable, you know, alternative treatments or just treatments generally for COVID. It wasn't supposed to work. And you're not supposed to think that there's anything that he could do besides take the jab. Well, they're, they're not likely to give the mea culpa that they were wrong. But the fact is, ivermectin proved especially good at treating antiviral activity against several RNA viruses by blocking the nuclear trafficking of viral proteins. So just, you know, by way of, you know, armchair, you know, virology here, COVID is a virus. And Dr. Harold Peace points out in the SARS epidemic of 2003, ivermectin demonstrated an ability to inhibit SARS-CoV-2 replication, like COVID, a respiratory infection leading to lower infection rates. Countries using ivermectin with routine mass drug administration of prophylactic have a significantly lower incidence of COVID-19. And again, India and Japan are just two of these examples. 
Now, Harold Pease writes that Attorney General Peterson in Nebraska found that peer-reviewed COVID studies treating patients with ivermectin reported positive outcomes, including shorter time to resolution of disease manifestations that were attributed to COVID-19, greater reduction in inflammatory marker levels, shorter time to viral clearance, and lower mortality rates in patients who received ivermectin than in patients who received comparator drugs or placebo. The drug led to improvement of COVID outcomes when used in early treatment or as a prophylaxis. Now, he also noted that the the few negative studies on the use of ivermectin as a COVID treatment were not peer-reviewed. And in fact, they excluded most available evidence, cherry-picked data within studies, misreported data, made unsupported assertions of adverse reactions to ivermectin, and had conclusions that did not follow from the evidence. In the case of the hostile treatment of hydroxychloroquine published in The Lancet, the statistics were flawed and the authors refused to provide analyzed data. Even its editor, Dr. Richard Horton, later admitted after publication that the paper was a fabrication, a monumental fraud, and a shocking example of research misconduct in the middle of a global health emergency. Well, if that doesn't build confidence in the medical establishment, I, I don't know what could. So why the opposition by Big Pharma to two drugs that could already cure COVID? Well, Harold P. says the answer is money. Even without ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, 99% will survive COVID. Vaccines would not be necessary. They don't work anyway. Else, why would one need boosters every three months? Look at all the industry profits already made. The truth is, COVID is a trillion-dollar industry. Are we smart enough to see the obvious? He says probably the best evidence for ivermectin as an effective cure for COVID is, however, Merck, the patent holder of ivermectin, who is not promoting it as a COVID cure. Why? Well, because ivermectin, a cheap 46-year-old drug, has long wore out its profit potential. Why not create a new drug, largely ivermectin, call it Molnupravir? Up the price 100 times plus, marketed as just discovered as a cure for COVID. The U.S. government has agreed to pay Merck about $1.2 billion for 1.7 million courses of its experimental COVID-19 treatment if it is proven to work in an ongoing large trial and authorized by regulators. Molnupravir. Molnupir, let me try this name again. Molnupiravir aims to stop COVID from progressing when given early in the course of the disease, just like ivervectin does right now. Isn't that something? Dr. P says, forward a copy of this column to your elected state leaders. Ask them to join Nebraska in restoring doctors' medical freedom to prescribe what they and you feel is best for you. Pretty good stuff. I I like Dr. Pease, and I think this is a really timely article. And even without it, I have to say, I'm I'm just, I'm flabbergasted at how many people, you know, are looking for reasons not to believe, looking for reasons to reject the possibility that there could be anything to the use of either ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. Now, I know it's anecdotal. But I've talked to three different people, none of whom know each other, who all have had very positive experiences with ivermectin. And I'm not talking, you know, they were eating horse paste or whatever. I'm sure there are those who have done it effectively and, you know, don't give themselves the whole tube like they're a 1,200-pound horse. 
But these were using ivermectin that was prescribed by, you know, a, a doctor. This was the pharmaceutical stuff. And to a person, they report that uh, they, they started to have symptoms. They off, I think all of them were tested and found to be positive for COVID-19. So they started on ivermectin right away. And th- this is the common thread between all of them. Within 24 hours, they absolutely were on the mend. Like 90% of their symptoms were gone and they were improving from that point forward. And so I ask you, how is that a bad thing? And I know there are some who will say, well, now, you know, Brian, people could have adverse reactions, you know. Some people could die from taking that. Yes. Good thing we can't say that about the vaccine, right? Oh, wait a minute. Let's look at what the VAERS report has to say about, you know, these vaccine injuries and so forth. And by the way, there's some very interesting evidence coming out about vaccine injuries. And, and look, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you you should be totally anti-vax. I'm saying the reality is vaccines, COVID and otherwise, can cause injury. That is just part of the, the natural laws that we live under. For some people, the, the, the reactions are going to be less than positive. I was looking at some numbers in a report yesterday. I didn't have a chance to really study this, you know, in great depth. But if what this report appears to show is true, roughly 5% of the batches of vaccine that went out are responsible for 90% or more of the vaccine injuries and adverse reactions that people have experienced in getting the jab. Isn't that interesting? And, and by the way, those uh, those five bad batches or the five suspect batches, if you will. I'm sorry, I can't think of a diplomatic way to say this to without it sounding like, well, you're spinning this hard. These were the most widely distributed batches. So it's a story I'll be keeping an eye on. I don't have enough to go on it at the, at the moment. But wouldn't that be an interesting possibility? Look, the bottom line is this. If you feel that the uh, the vaccine is the best bet for you. For instance, if you're in a high-risk category, make the decision that's best for you. I'm not the one who can tell you this is what you have to do. I don't want to presume that kind of responsibility for your life and your health. By the same token, that's the attitude you and I should have towards everybody else who chooses differently than we do. Because some people are going to say, it's not for me. Respect that. But I don't know, there's, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of uh, hatred that's being pushed toward people who remain unvaccinated. I think that's an artificially generated bit of outrage. And I think it's coming from a place of emotion rather than a place of reason. But the sad thing is it's working, and people are losing their jobs, and people are paying a very high price for not being in compliance with a particular health directive that is being used as a one-size-fits-all solution that isn't really that much of a solution, it turns out, especially since you need boosters on the regular. Boy, that almost felt like a rant. Why do I say that? Because I just feel better. <laughs> Thank you for letting me get that out there. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, just want to give a quick shout out here to my newest sponsor. That is GovernYourIncome.com. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. In a nutshell, if I can just jump right to the chase, this is an opportunity for someone who really wants to have a truly independent income through day trading. Now, we're not talking day trading penny stocks or even trading the stock market itself. This is day trading on the foreign currency exchange or Forex. And if you think about this, no matter what the markets do, so if if the, the U.S. stock market were to tank tomorrow, the foreign exchange currency markets are still going to have to operate. There still has to be a way for that money to change hands between different foreign currencies, different foreign currency holders. Now, this is not something for everybody, but if you're a person who's very serious about uh, your income and keeping it insulated from mandates and insulated from corporate dictates, and you want to be able to do it from anywhere that you have an internet signal, please click on the link, governyourincome.com, and just look at things. You can, you can pay $10 to run a little demo of their proprietary software. They train you how to do the trading. But I'm going to emphasize again, it's not for everybody. But if you're the kind of person who can thrive and, and uh, to, who, who knows how to crunch the numbers, you could do very, very well. Please check it out. So here's some good news. I thought we would end on kind of a positive note. Um, the term insurrection is being used. A lot. I find myself using it mockingly. Anytime something doesn't go my way, I describe it as an insurrection. Somebody messed up my order at the drive through window. This insurrection cannot go unpunished. And it, it's dramatic. It's like, it's like calling everything, you know, terrorism after 9-11. If I don't get my stake in the next five minutes, the terrorists will have won. It's the same kind of thing. It's the same principle. It's just you apply it to everything that, uh, that inspires outrage and, you know, boom. You know, everything's an insurrection. But here's the good news. According to J. Michael Waller, a growing number of Americans are clearly rejecting the narrative that uh, it was an insurrection on January 6th. Two polls are showing that very few Americans believe it was a coup either or an insurrection. The numbers are declining. Here's what uh, J. Michael Waller says. He says, Americans never bought House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's insurrection narrative about the January 6th violence at the Capitol. And the majority believe the incident was not as serious as portrayed, according to a new pair of polls. More Americans identify the mayhem as either a riot or protests rather than an insurrection, armed or otherwise, according to polls published in June and October. Now, the Center Center for Security Policy commissioned those polls with TIPP in May and September, asking the same respondents for multiple answers to identify precise public perceptions about the riot that occurred during the January 6th protest. As the Congressional January 6th Committee began hearings in late September, the percentage of Americans who agreed with the insurrection narrative had declined since spring. In fact, more Americans described January 6th events as unlawful entry or vandalism rather than Pelosi's favored term of insurrection. By the way, I think it's, it's worth noting, as far as I know, not a single person of the hundreds who were rounded up and some, most of them being held as political prisoners now in Washington, D.C., none have actually been charged with insurrection. Huh. 
It's kind of a curious oversight, don't you think? You'd think that would, that would be at the top of the list if that's what they were engaged in. But it's not. Actually, uh, J. Michael Waller says, uh, the rejection of the insurrection narrative is the strongest among Republicans, independents, and people of color. And the poll results show no majority view as to what Americans call the events of January 6th. Now, back in June, 9% of Republicans and 13% of independents identified with the insurrection label. 5 and 13% with the uh, armed insurrection term. But by October, those numbers had decreased. Democrats held the strongest view, with 18% choosing insurrection in June, 15% in October. And armed insurrection at 22 and 19%, respectively. And again, just out of curiosity, where they get that armed insurrection? The only armed individuals were the police, one of whom, a Capitol Police officer, shot to death an unarmed protester. With impunity. That's, that's the only one that I can think of. Nobody else was armed. Blacks and Hispanics showed more skepticism about the insurrection narrative than whites. The June poll showed 11% of people of color agreed with the insurrection label, 9% with armed insurrection. But four months later, those numbers held steady at 10% and 9% respectively. And the term chosen most often by respondents to describe January 6th was domestic terrorism at 25% in June and 23% in October. Now, this was not the term of choice for Pelosi. The Justice Department has not charged any January 6th suspect with terrorism-related crimes, but the opinion is strong among the sizable minority that favors the description. Now, variations were small in both polls among race and sex, the sharpest differences being according to political affiliation. 34 and 33% of Democrats in both polls called January 6th domestic terrorism, compared to 14 and 11% of Republicans and 21 and 22% of independents. Fewer people of color than whites called it domestic terrorism in June. That would be 21% among blacks and Hispanics and 26% among whites, but practically matched in October with 24 and 23% respectively. So I guess the bottom line here is most consider January 6th as less serious than the narrative alleges. That's good news. Okay, it's not because, well, political violence is actually acceptable as long as it's my side that's engaging in it. So please don't mistake what I'm saying here for, you know, defending people acting out in violent or destructive ways. But it never looked like an insurrection. That's just a political cuss word being thrown around by members of the political class who are also trying very hard to look like victims so that they can, you know, clamp down and and acquire even more power over the citizenry who I might add is righteously ticked off at some of the things that were being forced into by the political class. I wonder if they realize, you know, it's, uh, this, this is a pretty dangerous game they're playing. You start treating people like domestic terrorists, they may start acting like domestic terrorists. What was it uh, that uh, Bruce Banner used to say about, uh, don't make me angry, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Okay, don't treat me like a criminal. You wouldn't like me when I'm a criminal. Back to the article here. Respondents, when given a broad set of choices, overwhelmingly did not agree with the dominant narrative of insurrection or even domestic terrorism, even though those terms plus armed insurrection made up three of the six most popular responses. 
The number of respondents uh, who were not sure about what to call January 6th, that's 13% in June, 14% in October, was equal to and greater than those who actually called it an insurrection. Civil disobedience and insurrection got roughly equal responses in the poll with more choosing civil disobedience in October, just outside the poll's margin of error. So, I mean, you had words that less serious words describing January 6th included things like riot, protest, unlawful entry. They could also choose vandalism, civil disobedience, mob, trespassing, demonstration, rebellion, unrest, siege, looting, revolt, or petty theft. Now, J. Michael Waller says, look, these polls were designed to gauge with precision the public's opinion about the January 6th events by inviting up to three answers. And about 1,300 respondents in the June and October polls were asked in an online questionnaire which of the following words best describe the events of January 6th in Washington, D.C. Please accept, or please select, rather, up to three. So a triple voting system was allowed to measure mood in a more nuanced way than single answers would provide. And for this reason, the total percentage of answers far exceeds 100%. So one can safely conclude significant overlap among responses. I guess the margin of error for these polls or cred interval is 2.8%. So I have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Look, I'm not saying you should uh, you should agree with what uh, the crowd did at the Capitol back on January 6th. But I'm also suggesting you neither should you feel like you have to agree with uh, what the politicians are saying happened when clearly it appears that a portion of this has been exaggerated and blown out of proportion. I mean, they've succeeded in getting some of the, the video released, 14,000 hours of surveillance video. And it's very clear. The majority of people who walked into the U.S. Capitol did just that. Some of them being waved in by police officers, Capitol police officers, who opened up the barriers and let them come in and look around. You know, what we're not hearing, though, is we're not hearing much about uh, did the FBI have informants? Did they have assets in that crowd? And in fact, what role were they playing? I wonder why there's such a deafening silence on that matter. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, the purpose of this program is not to tell you what to think. It's to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible. That's because truth isn't something that's just handed to you by someone in authority. It's something we have to go after ourselves. That's why it's essential we don't allow our thinking to become hyper-focused on who or what we're against. We should be more certain about who we are individually and what we stand for. So I invite you to come find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers. And above all, to claim your heritage as a free individual. Because that's how you can make the difference that you were born to make. 
Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourIncome.com. So let's, uh, let's jump in. Let's just start right out by talking about how uh, freedom is being redefined as something very different from how most of us traditionally grew up understanding it. For instance, one of the definitions that I'm hearing these days is, well, you know, freedom is only possible when you are in full compliance with what you're being told to do. In other words, as soon as people do everything they're told, then we can be free. I wish I were making this up. I wish I wish this wasn't, uh, you know, just a bit of satire. What, are you reading the Babylon Bee here? Nope. Seriously, that's that's how some people think. Isn't that funny how that works? It's usually people in power who are suggesting this. Only after you have done everything that I'm telling you to do can you truly be considered free. In fact, let's consult George Orwell. Hey, would the Ministry of Truth sign off on this? What's that? Freedom is slavery. War is peace. Ignorance is strength. Got it. Such is the world we're living in right now. Got a great uh, article here from John Sanders. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. And it's a timeless reminder from the great writer C.S. Lewis about why it's so important to hold the line to defend truth so that we're not tamed by tireless propaganda. Now, John Sanders starts with uh, telling us about a lawsuit by 118 firefighters, police officers, and other city employees against the city of Raleigh, North Carolina's vaccination mandate against them. And it prompted this reaction by the editors of the declining local paper, The News and Observer. You ready for a little outrage? All right. Here's what the editors of the newspaper said. Quote, in Raleigh, the police holdouts say their refusal is about freedom. In its letter to the city... The city, of, the city of Raleigh, Freedom to Choose Coalition, said that its members are not opposed to vaccines, but they oppose top-down mandates, coercion, and control. Fundamentally, CRFC is for freedom and for respect of the individual. But the newspaper says, no, officers refusing to get vaccinated is not about freedom. It's about shirking their duty, end quote. Now, John Sanders says, okay, the city's first responders who never shirked their duty, even during the early days of COVID, while the editors and the rest of the laptop set stayed at smug at home, clearly understand freedom to be for the individual in opposition to state coercion. The editor's redirection, meanwhile, is tacit acknowledgement that freedom is desirable, but they're compelled to repackage freedom as something unseemly, so they can then recast state coercion as freedom. Yeah, it's a pretty nifty bit of rhetorical sleight of hand. The Raleigh ruckus is merely a fresh example in the statist's long war to redefine freedom, but one that's been waged with greater intensity nationwide amid all the COVID-excused mandates, from lockdowns to mask orders to now vaccination mandates. Your freedom to open your non-essential business or work your non-essential job, which, by the way, is very much essential to you and your family, was reframed as asserting your freedom to infect. An individual's choice not to adopt a government dress code, meaning the freedom to choose where and whether to don a face mask, was really declaring a freedom to kill grandma. Same with the vaccination mandates and whatever future orders are yet dreamed up. I have the freedom to kill you with my COVID, is how President Joe Biden characterized these concerns in an October 21st appearance on CNN. 
Now, John Sanders says, look, such denigration and acidic vituperation of freedom, what Americans have normally referred to and understood as freedom, reminds me of an obscure C.S. Lewis poem, The Prudent Jailer. Now, the poem originated not in political allegory, but as a critique of unimaginative literary criticism. Notwithstanding, the jailer is a diabolical figure, and and his prudence is this, he imprisons with words rather than walls. Only six stanzas long, the poem opens with prisoners suffering from nostalgia and escape fantasies. Here's the poem. Always the old nostalgia, yes. We still remember times before. We had learned to wear the prison dress or steel rings rubbed our ankles sore. Escapists, yes. Looking at bars and chains, we think of files and then of black nights without moon or stars and luck befriending hunted men. Meanwhile, they languish in envy of free travelers. Still, when we hear the trains at night, we envy the free travelers whirled in how few moments past the sight of the blind wall that bounds our world. And John Sanders says, That stanza draws to mind the famous opening of Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison Blues. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling round the bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on, but that train keeps a-rolling on down to San Antonio. Now, Cash's train passes a real, tangible prison, And he sings the blues of a murderer who admits, I know I had it coming. I know I can't be free. Lewis's prisoners, however, are bound by a blind wall. What does that mean? Well, the next stanza offers clues. Our jailer, well, he may, well, may he, prefers our thoughts should keep a narrower range. The proper study of prisoners is prison, he tells us. Is it strange? So the jailer has them imprisoned by their own thoughts while he keeps them focused ever on the presumption of a prison. He doesn't want them thinking of anything else. Now, John Sanders says in the early days of COVID, governors and media all suddenly started promoting a new normal. April 15th, 2020 seemed like it was declared a new normal day, with several several governors suddenly making new normal pronouncements. In this new normal, we were told, people would no longer enjoy life as they once did. They were keeping us focused on normalizing what we thought were temporary emergency measures. Now, if you seemed willing to call the euphemism for what it was, advocacy of the abnormal, including an especially abnormal expansion of government power against the individual. This new abnormal needed an abnormal notion of freedom, which the reliable proponents of state coercion in media, academia, academia and uh, entertainment have been very happy to provide. And the mandates offered them a prudent substitute The masks are freedom, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine told PBS NewsHour back on October 7th of 2020. Social distancing gives us freedom, and these COVID-19 tests give us freedom. That sure sounds Orwellian from just a little ways down the road, doesn't it? New York Times contributor Michael Tomaski did a very Timesian thing on October 17th of 2020. By simultaneously deriding freedom as manifest silliness and something incessantly talked about by talked about wholly on the right but that nevertheless must be harnessed by the broad left in America to what end well to play some philosophical offense especially on the issue of wearing masks say this 
Freedom means the freedom not to get infected by the idiot who refuses to mask up. Ah, diplomatic, that one. Now we're being told that vaccines mean freedom. In the words of a July 30th, 2021 column in The Atlantic, judging by the examples provided, this conception of freedom is being able to attend a baseball game, to go to church, to hold a job or get an education. Vaccines offer us the freedom to participate, the freedom to circulate back in the world, the freedom to be human again. Yeah, but only as long as you're up to date. Now, John Sanders says, in contrast with this new definition of freedom, the, the, the Atlantic erected several straw men characters of freedom. Caricatures of freedom, I should say. Absolute anarchic freedom. Irresponsible freedom. The freedom to not wear a mask with the assurance they'll be well taken care of at a hospital if they do get sick. And access to social media and the connection to American culture that comes with it. All the rights, privileges, and benefits of human community without any sense of obligation to be responsible participants in that community. And freedom without repercussions. Good Lord, I hope they had their uh, blood pressure medication on hand. Because I'm seriously worried for them, whoever wrote that. We're going to come back to John Sanders' article in just a few moments. It is linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Listen, if you subscribe at my website... It ain't going to cost you a thing, but I will happily send you my show notes in your email each day that I do the show. It's a pretty sweet deal. Maybe you should jump on that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Once again, if you've stuck with me this far, hopefully you can, you can make it through the entire show. My goal is not to make you uh, frightened. It's not to make you angry. I'm not to, to here to make you more certain of who and what you're against. But I am definitely doing my best to persuade people think more deeply, think more independently, even if that means you disagree with me. Own your worldview and do not allow people to play word games that uh, manipulate or lead your mind somewhere that you would not voluntarily choose to go. Right now, I'm sharing an article from uh, an author by the name of uh, John Sanders. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. And this is just the, the finishing part of his article, but tireless propaganda, a warning from C.S. Lewis. And yet this is one of the best things I've read all week long about how freedom is twisted as well. You know, it's just, it's it's a horrible thing, and it's freedom without repercussions, irresponsible and anarchic, and, you know, you can't call that freedom if you're doing your own thing and everybody else is doing their own thing. Gee, yeah, you know, that's, uh, you're right. If we were all clicking our heels and marching in unison, why, that would be real freedom. Yeah, I'm not I'm not following their logic. Back to the article. Um, John uh, Sanders says, Statist peddling mandates as freedom would give the subservient a day pass to be human again. Call it freedom and denigrate actual freedom. And he says uh, they do that because uh, some people remember the normal normal. This is how C.S. Lewis described it. He says, And if old freedom in our glance betrays itself, he calls it names, dope, wishful thinking, or romance, till tireless propaganda tames. 
Ooh, that's a nice turn of phrase. John Sanders says, Our jailer knows well the weakness of our blind wall, that is, remembering we are free. He must therefore constantly defame our old freedom with tireless propaganda. Can enough of us defy being tamed by this relentless onslaught? And if so, how? Well, the answer is in Lewis's final stanza. All but the strong whose hearts they break. All but the few whose faith is whole. Some walls cannot a prison make. Half so secure as rigmarole. So what's the message here? John Sanders says it's to stay strong. Keep the faith. In the words of New York City police officers, firefighters, and others currently protesting Mayor Bill de Blasio's vaccine mandate, hold the line. We cannot let statists rigmarole twist our understanding of freedom into something more like a day-pass reward from the state for good behavior. In fact, he reminds us, never forget that in the American system, it's the government that holds a restricted day-pass from the governed. Boom! That is how political power flows. Our government's power is granted by us, for us, which is why government is limited and constitutionally forbidden from taking our individual God-given rights. And John Sanders says, hold the line and remember. I had the privilege a couple of years ago of working with a wonderful organization called uh, the Loving Liberty Foundation. And uh, there's a beautiful uh, hall in uh, Ogden, Utah, Liberty Hall, in which it's a meeting place, a great place for for gatherings of of patriots and education, beautiful commissioned paintings um, that that hang on the walls that depict uh, various aspects of America's heritage and and past. I mean, it's, it's really very well thought out. And there's also a beautiful statue of George Washington sitting atop his horse, with uh, his hand outstretched, and he's, he's clearly giving a command. And the command is, hold your ground. And we're talking, this is a, this is a monument-sized statue. It's, it's really something. And I've looked at that statue many times and felt inspired by what Washington was saying. And I think it, it comes to mind today for, for the very same reason. Look, we think that we're in this right now and we're so on our own and we've strayed or we're, you know, we've just been, uh, you know, abandoned by the principles and the people of the past. Okay, I, I'm going to sound weird for suggesting this, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway, only because I, I, I really believe this. And you don't have to believe it, but from my heart, this is, this is what I sense. The people who wore their lives out in the cause of liberty who came before us, who put down the foundations upon which others built, creating a a remarkable nation, a remarkable society, and the greatest amount of human freedom that uh, the world has seen. I think they're still very much a part of that cause of freedom, even though they departed this life a long time ago. I think that they're still very much concerned about the work that they began. And I know, so are you telling us a ghost story, Brian? What I'm telling you is that I believe we actually have more help than, than what we see around us at this time. If you're putting your faith strictly in politicians, I'm sorry, you're going to be disappointed. I know that right now what's making a lot of news headlines is, oh my goodness, Yunkin beats McAuliffe in Virginia. And while that's a good thing, in my conversation with Eric Peters recently, he said, 
man, it's it's like taking a choice between drinking dirty ditch water or drinking from the toilet. But he says, you know, for the sake of slowing the juggernaut that is the state, I guess I'll drink from the ditch and uh, let, uh, you know, Terry, the, Terry McAuliffe be the toilet water that goes un, undrunk, undrunken, drank, anyway. <laughs> I just backed myself into an English conundrum here. Nonetheless, we have help. We have help from people who are, are good, solid, reasonable patriots who really understand what freedom is that are willing to sacrifice every person you know of or every person you hear of who is willing to walk away from their job rather than knuckle under to an unreasonable demand upon them and upon their body. That's a heroic stand for freedom. That is holding your ground. And without getting, you know, too far off in the weeds here, um, I know I know that God is uh, is on the side of freedom. I believe it's essential to his plan for happiness for his children. It's the greatest gift he's ever given us. But so few people recognize it for what it is and are willing to stand up and assert it and hold that line. I, I see a lot of uh, memories popping up on my Facebook uh, timeline right now. And it's because four years ago, right now, I was in Las Vegas, Nevada, covering the trial of Ammon Bundy, Ryan Bundy, Cliven Bundy, and Ryan Payne. And I learned a lot through that trial. I learned a lot of uncomfortable things about the way that certain agencies within our government have been allowed to operate, the way that they will run roughshod over people. But more importantly, and I thank Ryan Bundy for pointing this out, I learned that the only rights that we have are those rights that we claim, use, and defend. Now, that doesn't mean you just, you know, blindly go about claim, use, defend, you know, here I go. You have to actually pay the price to know what your rights are. So I'm going to ask you, without making you too uncomfortable, what are you doing today to contribute to your understanding of what your God-given natural rights are? And by the way, a good rule of thumb, if you want to know, you know, how how can I tell if it's a natural right? Does it limit government's power over you? If the answer is yes, then you're probably dealing with a natural right. Does it create an obligation for someone else to provide you with something? If that's the case, it is most assuredly not a natural right. So the more familiar you and I can become with what our natural rights are, and why they matter, the more effective we will be at claiming, using, and defending them. I know, by, by invoking the Bundys as, as an example of doing this, for some people, they're going to be like, there's no way. I totally disagree with those guys. And that's fine. I understand not everybody has the same perspective that I have. But having been close personal friends with Ryan Bundy for many, many years, I feel pretty confident in saying he got this right. And I think that uh, as, as that as that trial played out and as the events uh, rolled out the way that they did, who expected that the Bundys would be free people? Back to ranching, back to doing what they were doing, peacefully enjoying their rights, which they claimed, which they are using, and which they successfully defended with God's help. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. I uh, have to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. If you are hearing my voice anywhere within the state of Utah, if you're moving to the state of Utah, this is who you really should contact to get your mortgage from a VA loan to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, has the stability and the clout to get you the loan you need without delay, which in a very competitive real estate market is everything. Now, you can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715-386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, and they're located at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Well, among the uh, more disturbing ideas to float to the surface of the uh, Washington, D.C. cesspool is the idea that the wealthy aren't paying their share. And I got a great article here from Thomas Luongo. It's a nice primer on why people are, uh, or why why these ideas are proposed by, by politicians in the first place. And in fact, he's just more blunt. He says, why dumb ideas never die. He says, if you think the wealth tax is already in the rearview mirror, please keep your eyes on the road. The beta test is over, but that was just the nose in the tent phase. Democrats' knowledge of wealth is like the old saying about pornography. They know it when they see it, or in Hunter Biden's case, when they film it. But unlike porn, they don't know where it comes from. Also unlike porn, they know wealth has to be destroyed. Because wealth is the thing that negates what they call equity. Egalitarianism wasn't enough. That's making everybody equal. Now we need equal outcomes where each player's deficits are boosted to make the results the same. What better way to make the rich pay their, quote, fair share than by seizing the wealth they obviously must have stolen and then using that to even the playing field. He says it's notable that instead of going after the 2 and 20 of the carried interest set, the Democrats sought a mark-to-market tax on equities. That would be that tax on unrealized gains. It was explained as a way to collect capital gains taxes earlier in order to fund their hyperspend agenda but it was really a way to collect estate taxes rather early as it was structurally designed to force the sale of assets and destroy wealth. I think that may be the best definition I've heard yet. Now, the wealth tax failed this time because its mechanics were too dumb. That's what you get when you let uh, Senator uh, B.S., obsessed with uh, millionaires and billionaires and noted Native American Senator Elizabeth Warren, write tax policy. People asked, what happens when the market declines? Does the government cut everyone a check? Ooh. How is something non-fungible like a piece of real estate valued or works of art? What if someone has only one non-financial asset that makes them wealthy? Do they have to sell it to pay the tax? Take out loans? Well, this time they couldn't answer any of those questions, says Thomas Luongo, but the details don't matter. The target does. Real wealth endures and can maintain itself. It's the essence of capitalism which is why they hate it. Universal, equitable toil is what the left wants for all of us, and anything that allows someone to sit at home and contemplate the universe is anathema. To the salt mines, comrades! Now, he says, I jest, of course. That's gross exaggeration. Since they don't understand biology either, they hate salt, too. So he says, the left lives in an 80s teen comedy where Chad and Buffy is just so obvious, it makes it, it's just so obvious it never has to be explained. But he says, where you uh, 
Bring that hating Chad and Buffy zeitgeist into the policy-making sphere. Your laws are still supposed to make at least a modicum of sense. So if wealth was just a pile of gold coins, it might make sense to let Focahontas pilfer a few for the common good. You've got too many. Give me one. You know, just to shut her up. But real wealth has to be evaluated. And if the methods to do so are not clear or even agreed upon, how can the amount of tax be? So he talks about calculating wealth. And Tom Luongo says, market capitalization is not really the amount of money in a market. It's an abstract concept that's pretty defective as a calculation of value. It's the marginal price of a unit of account times this total circulating supply. So this means if we have a thousand widget coins in circulation and you offer me $2 for one of mine, the current widget coin market capitalization is $2,000. But if I have 700 widget coins, he asks, do I really have $1,400 in wealth? And the answer is it depends. If the market is very liquid and widget coins very desirable, maybe. But if I dump 700 out of a total supply of 1,000 on the widget coin market, I will likely break that market. The price of widget coins will probably approach a dollar or lower pretty quick. But Democrats can't understand why a 2% tax on my $1,400 widget coin fortune is unworkable. For some reason, it's an unattainable level of knowledge for them, and we will have no peace until the average person understands this. In fact, he describes it as a class study in envy. Thomas Luongo says, ask yourself why you know how much money Bill Gates, Elon Musk, or Jeff Bezos have. For years, the richest person in the U.S. has been defined using market cap style math. And this was always so imaginable, so unimaginable numbers could be thrown about in the service of class warfare narratives. And it's not that these people aren't rich. It's that their wealth is almost all in the stock of the companies they founded. So saying Elon Musk is worth $300 billion ignores a few things. Democrats think he has $300 billion in the bank, whereas in reality... Musk has lots of Tesla stock. The fact is, Musk's Tesla shares are not liquid in the same way that a 1,000 shares of TSLA is in an average person's IRA. So as an officer and over 10% holder, there are actually a variety of SEC and other regulatory issues Musk faces when selling stock. In many companies, operating agreements further restrict how much founder stock can be sold in a period. Vesting schedules for early employees add more restrictions, and the Democrats know this. They figure Musk can just take out loans against his shares and cut the Treasury a check, or Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos can. I think he meant Bill Gates, but point taken. Smaller founders who still qualify as the evil rich may not have that option. The more serious issue is that when you sell shares, you lose their votes. That is something company founders care deeply about, controlling the companies they started. If you have to sell 2% of your wealth or your shares every year to pay the Bernie and Lizzie tax, how long before you lose control of your company? What an added bonus for those who hate the productive. So for a while, we were asked to believe that fraudster Elizabeth Holmes of the occasionally mannish voice was a billionaire. At the time, that was held up as something to be lauded, a great achievement of female entrepreneurship. But Theranos was never worth $9 billion, except in the minds of reporters and first-year MBA graduates. Senior investors don't take early-stage valuations seriously. 
If you raise $10 million for 5% of your company, you don't have $200 million in the company treasury. And a founder with a 40% with 40% of the cap table doesn't have $80 million in the bank. But this is the kind of wealth, in quotation marks, the Democrats want to tax. Because they're not just insanely jealous, he says, they're also insanely stupid. But are they really? Thomas Luongo says there has to come a time when we stop believing that no one has thought about the unintended consequences. And what he's saying here is the intent is to stop the creation of wealth. And any narrative that serves that goal is on the table. So with every frantic drama the Democrats create, we need to ask, why are they doing this? If they care about the poor, why do they pass policies that create more poverty? If they want to reduce the take of rent seekers, why protect the tax structures that enrich them? If they're motivated to share the wealth, why do they only seek to destroy that which creates it? And the answer is always they just want to get something done, regardless of the cost. So he says, if you think a wealth tax won't affect you because it's only for the rich, don't be surprised when they lower the bar and call it a savings tax next. The sad truth, he says, is that we live on a farm with people who want to eat the seed corn. And if we don't wake up to it, there's not going to be a harvest in a couple of seasons. I like Thomas Luongo's take on stuff. Um, he's, he's got a pretty entertaining way of putting it. There's a link to this in the show notes, which you can check out at the thebrianhydeshow.com. And uh, again, if you want to dive a little bit deeper, he's got some great links to follow as well that will take you uh, further down the rabbit hole. So when we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to talk a little bit more about people choosing between their livelihood and their conscience when it comes to the vax mandates. I want to share a couple of thoughts from a teacher recently fired from his position in California for refusing to get uh, get vaccinated. Also, we'll talk about uh, keeping in perspective the anger and hatred that's being directed toward the unvaxxed. And why it's essential that we understand this is coming from a place of emotion. It's not coming from a place of reason. And more importantly, we should not return railing for railing just because somebody else is being unreasonable and angry with us. Oh, I know that's that's a lot easier said than done. But if our if our goal really is protecting freedom of conscience and our personal autonomy, we got to take the high road on this one. Just saying. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I hope you'll go to my show notes page at thebrianhydeshow.com. Spend a little bit of time with my sponsors. If Look, if you don't need what they are selling at the moment or what the product or service is they're offering, I bet you will at some point. Or maybe you know somebody who needs it right now. Maybe consider pointing them in the right direction. Especially at lifesavingfood.com. Man, I'm telling you, this is, this is such a timely period to get yourself a little more self-reliant. And please understand, there are some shipping delays now due to some of the breakdowns in the supply chain. Uh, Kendall, who's the owner of LifesavingFood.com, asked me to pass that on to you. There, there's still inventory available. Prices are beginning to go up, just like you're seeing at the grocery store. 
but you're not going to find a better time to to get going on that food storage, to bolster your existing food storage system, or to get started. And you'll get a nice 20% discount if you use my name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code at checkout. Well, more and more people are having to choose between their livelihoods and their consciences when it comes to the vaccine mandates. I saw a great article from Joshua Mahorter. This is uh, called, I was fired from my teaching job for refusing to get vaccinated. And I want you to just hear the, the reasoning that he goes through here. Why would a person walk away from a job, you know, when obviously, you know, it'd be easier to just take the jab and, and you know, stay gainfully employed? Well, Joshua Mahorter says, until recently, I was a California teacher working in two charter schools. One is a full-time classroom teacher of government and economics and sometimes U.S. history. And the other is a part-time independent study teacher who assists families with a program primarily based around homeschooling. He says, I've taught for about five years and I love teaching. Last week, I was fired from one school and put on unpaid administrative leave at the other because of my refusal to either take and demonstrate proof of the COVID-19 vaccine or test weekly. I even filed a religious exemption stating the following that was rejected. As a committed follower of Christ, I religiously and philosophically cannot submit to either a government vaccine mandate or weekly testing. These violate fundamental first principles, including biblical purview of civil government relative to God. And he cites the the appropriate scriptures, the Christian value of freedom of conscience, since whatever is not from faith is sin. The fact that my body is owned and dedicated to the Lord and not to the state, and my sacred duty to be faithful to oaths sworn, including the oath to support the U.S. Constitution and California state constitution. And there's a footnote in his declaration here that says both a vaccine mandate and weekly testing are in violation of the provisions of the Constitution in the First, Fourth, Ninth, and Tenth Amendments, especially the Ninth Amendment, which states the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. The Supreme Court has affirmed a constitutional right to privacy historically in Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965. Since I am bound by a solemn oath to support the Constitution, I can neither submit to nor support a vaccine mandate or weekly testing because to do so would violate conscience. Now he says, based on my refusal to back down on these principles, I was offered two options, the opportunity to resign or be terminated. In order to force the issue, I chose to maintain my position, refusing to resign, so I was terminated. My situation was kind of the mirror opposite of the old joke adage, you can't fire me, I quit. Instead, I basically said to my employers, I can't quit, you fire me. Now, not everybody's in the position to force the issue, but he says, I am. And I felt I had no choice. It would be incongruous with what I consistently teach my students for me to back down and comply in a matter of rights, liberty, and principles. A quote often attributed to, misattributed to Thomas Jefferson, but nevertheless true, applies, in matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. He says, I hope I would still have the character to stand by my principles, even if my situation was more dire. However, there are some concrete actions and disciplines which protect me now. First, an emergency fund that can cover three to six months of expenses. Second, I have no debt. Third, my expenses are minimal. Fourth, I possess plenty of social capital, that is, positive social relationships with family, friends, and my community. 
Now, he says, I encourage every reader to follow these disciplines and practices as soon as possible because the time has come to stand for principles. And these are just a few things that can help you do so with confidence. He says, personally, over the next year, I will take this as an opportunity to become completely self-employed and to help other people find financial freedom because, as we know, it is inextricably connected with personal and political freedom. There's great freedom in the ability to say no and walk away. Of all the pressures that make situations like this difficult, financial pressure is often one of the most challenging. Financial stability, financial freedom, and long-term wealth are simple but not easy. It's been rightly said that finances are 20% knowledge and 80% behavior, and a monthly budget is essential in this regard. Contrary to popular belief, a budget is not just a constraint, but rather taking full control of your money by knowing exactly how each dollar is being spent. Now, as the saying goes, a budget is simply telling your money where to go versus wondering where it went. This gives people a sense of ownership, control, and empowerment. A budget involves the regular discipline of saying no to ourselves so that if and when the time comes, we can say no when our workplaces attempt to implement policies and expect us to comply because of the financial pressure. And this is a home run. In additionally, in order to additionally, rather, he says, in order to protect yourself, Dave Ramsey recommends building a thousand dollar emergency fund and paying off all debt minus real estate, then building up savings that uh, then building up savings that cover three to six months of expenses. I mean, can you see the wisdom of this now? Joshua Mahorder says a little bit of discipline today can lead to freedom tomorrow and the ability to walk away even from a job you love when your conscience demands it. I know, that's a tough one. But I think the the peace of mind that comes with having that conscience uh, being followed and adhered to is probably worth it. Still, I'm sad for the pain that some of these people are having to go through. All right, one final thought here, and this is just kind of an afterthought here. The anger and hatred that is being encouraged towards the unvaxxed, it's daunting. But we got to keep it in perspective. And in fact, we have to be certain we're not mirroring it back at the people perpetuating it. Steve Apfel reminds us that hatred is coming from emotion, not reason. And he says, when COVID braving Dennis Prager said he contracted it purposely in order to be taken care of by therapeutics, the public outcry was more life-threatening than the virus. He must be made to pay for any treatment he gets. He should be denied a hospital bed. Another conservative talk show host spreads his disease. Every story speaks of a mini plague and every ending is a blameworthy death. Is fear driving the paranoia? What's to hate in someone who makes a choice and takes the consequences and is content to let others do so? And why is it doctors who seem more prone to arousal? The unvaccinated are despised with incomprehensible ardor. Take Dr. Clive uh, Shaketi whose brother died from or with COVID. Dr. Shaketi certainly deserves condolences because losing a brother is a terrible loss. However, he decided to create a video lashing out at others, and he can't hide from critiques about his words. Grief is not a defense to error or irrationality. Now, when the video starts, his manner is sedate, his words are are deliberate, and his voice controlled. I have no political agenda or investments in any vaccine-making company, but I, as a physician, have an obligation to try to help to save people's lives. 
and he spends a few moments, you know, explaining why vaccines are low risk, etc. But soon he grows vindictive. A beloved brother had not been vaccinated, and he's beside himself. His words, his manner, and his voice would curdle milk. This doctor is bent on reprisal. For the passing of that precious brother who wouldn't get jabbed, the unvaxxed are going to bear the brunt. If you're not getting vaccinated, he says, you're like someone who drinks and drives. Maybe you'll get away with it. Maybe you won't kill yourself or others on the road. Perhaps you will. But the unvaxxed should have to sign a directive. No vaccination, no intubation, no medicine. 10,000 guilt-ridden and scapegoating hatreds could be eating up the grieving doctor. Now, from here, the author goes through, and and, uh, Steve Apfel makes a very strong case for, look, you got to show some patience when you're dealing with people who are coming from that place of um, emotion. Pleading, you know, well, if, if you guys don't do this, you know, you're an evil person. They're not coming at it from a rational place. And you've got to be able to let that roll off your back and, and shrug it off as, as opposed to, you know, wallowing in it. Fear is what drives a lot of people. And I think that uh, Zuby, the, uh, the rapper, said it best. He says, I feel like the last 20 months have been people trying to convince me to be as afraid as they are. And then getting angry at me when I refuse to be as afraid as they are. Okay, so get, getting mad back at them, not the way. If you're going to lead, lead with calmness, lead with courage. Above all, lead with love. It may seem like the difference you're making is imperceptible, but I promise you're making a difference. This is The Brian Hyde Show.